seeking the Lord's blessing, then we want to return to chapter 12 of Romans that we read earlier. Chapter 12. We're going to choose verse 1 as our text. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Then for our text, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And the title I want to give to our meditation this morning is, is Living for God. Living for God. The book of Romans is arguably the greatest exposition of the gospel that we find in the Bible. And Paul wrote this letter to the Roman Christians because he was going to introduce himself and the gospel that he proclaimed to them. He didn't see them. He had no part in establishing them as a church. Yet he wanted to visit them. And he couldn't on a number of occasions, but he did hope to visit them. But in order that he might introduce himself, first of all, he wrote this letter to them that they might be aware of him and the gospel that he proclaimed. And really from the first or the second part of chapter 1 up until this point, he has been expounding the gospel. So from the second half of chapter 1 right up until the end of chapter 11, Paul has been expounding doctrine. He has been telling them more than the ABCs of Christianity. He's been teaching them things like predestination, election, justification by faith, sanctification. He's been teaching them about the the security that they have in Christ and many other things. But he comes to the end of the doctrinal part of the epistle. And immediately here in chapter 12 to chapter 16, he is now, if you like, he is applying what he has been teaching them in the former chapters. And there's a lesson here right at the very beginning for us in our introduction. We should value love and appreciate Christian doctrine. We should be ones who would want to know more about the gospel. We're not ashamed to say that in some sense, and we underline some sense, the gospel is clear and simple. But in another sense, the gospel, the full gospel message is profound and will never plumb the depths of the gospel message. And some people really don't go any further than this. They would fill their heads with theology, fill their heads with biblical doctrine, with confessions and catechisms, which is good, of course. And we must have these things, of course. But Paul would never leave it there. Christianity 
is not just intellectual. Christianity is not just for our heads. We might say Christianity is also for our hearts. It is to motivate us. It is to transform us. The gospel is the power of God. And that power works. When God spoke, he brought the world into being. And it is the same power that's in the gospel that transforms lives. Lives that were once dead in trespasses and sins, living ungodly lives, serving their own lusts and their own desires. But when the gospel comes with power, however you want to describe it, when the gospel comes, when Jesus is in the heart, when Jesus sits upon the throne of the heart of the individual, that life is transformed. This is what he's saying here. He has told them wonderful things, things that you are familiar with. He has told them to this young infant church. He has expounded the mysteries of the gospel. Now, now that you know this, now that you have this new life, here is how you are to live. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. One commentator said, and you might like to ponder this, there are two living sacrifices for us in the Bible. The first one, he says, was Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was, going, was told to offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham was no child, uh, Isaac was no child. And Abraham could never have tied him and prepared him for sacrifice unless Isaac had volunteered and was willing. And Isaac was prepared to be sacrificed. But we know the outcome, of course, God provided a lamb and Isaac was not sacrificed. But in one sense, he was a living sacrifice. He was prepared to offer up himself. The other living sacrifice is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was a living sacrifice. And he suffered. He went to Gethsemane, sweated great drops of blood when it became obvious to him what was required in order to offer up himself as a living sacrifice. But he went further. He went to Golgotha. He submitted. He could have overtaken all his enemies there. They could never have put him on the cross unless he was willing. He offered up himself a living sacrifice. And of course, you know this. You know what happened on the third day he arose. He is a living sacrifice. This is what's required of the Christian. That ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Another commentator has mentioned and highlighted here we have the fourth significant therefore in the book of Romans. The fourth significant therefore. 
He goes back and he acknowledges in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we have, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And there he, man he maintains, this is the first significant therefore. What's he saying? Well, he's, he's ending a particular section in the, in the epistle where he has outlined that the Gentiles are under sin and under condemnation, and so are the Jews, with all their blessings, with all their privileges. Nevertheless, they are still under condemnation because they have the law, but they've never been able to keep the law. And therefore he goes on, therefore by the deeds of the law, you'll never be justified by keeping the law. No, something else is required. And maybe there are some here today, today that I need to impress this upon them again and again and again. You'll never get right with God by obeying the commandments. You'll never get right. You'll never be justified. The law was never designed to justify sinners. The law was there to condemn sinners. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. The other, therefore, he notices, is in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, he has outlined the way of salvation. Him being delivered for our offenses was raised to life for our justification, it says at the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 says, the beginning, therefore, being justified by faith. There's the way to get right with God. It's to look to the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. It's to look to the Lord Jesus and what he has done. And when we look to him, what do we find? We are justified by faith. Justified, friends, we need to remind ourselves and be fully aware what it means in the Bible. To be justified is to be right. It's to be in a right standing and our right relationship with God. Not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's another, therefore, that he mentions, and it's in Romans chapter 8, that wonderful chapter of consolation and comfort for the Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there's no condemnation. Do you know? Do you realize that the whole world is under condemnation? The whole unbelieving world is under the condemnation of God even today. Unbelievers... They're under God's condemnation now. If you're an unbeliever this morning and you're sitting here under the means of grace and the gospel's being proclaimed to you, you need to know and you need to realize and accept what the Bible says. You're actually under the condemnation of God now. But you might say to me, minister, I don't feel anything. I don't feel the condemnation you're talking about. Is it surprising that dead people don't feel anything? You don't feel it. Well, we must not trust our feelings. 
We're under the Bible. We're under the inspiration of God. It's God's Word. And God's Word will tell us that if we're unbelievers, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And you're not to trust your feelings. You're to trust the Word of God. But for the Christian, the Christian is to grasp this. This is to be his meat and drink. This is to sustain him when the evil one will come along and he will condemn him. And even, and even the Christian's heart might, might well condemn him. His mind, his memory will think upon things that happened before. Think of his former sins. And what will come to the mind of the Christian? How can I possibly be a Christian? Look what I did in times past. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. This is what God says. This is what he says in his word. This is what we are to believe. We're not to believe the, the attacks of the evil one. We're not to believe our own old nature. We're to believe what the word of God says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Not a scrap of condemnation awaits the Christian. Why? Because our substitute, he was condemned. He was condemned. In our place. And this fourth therefore he highlights. Is the, high, is the therefore of dedication. In the light of all that Paul has said. To these Christians in Rome. This strong church. This vigorous church. This growing church. He says to them. Therefore, in the light of all I've said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this is not unexpected. It's not unexpected. Because becoming a Christian is a life-changing experience. It's not like joining the bowling club. It's not like joining a debating society. It's not like joining any other human institute. This is God's church. This is the church of the firstborn. This is the church where Christ is king and head. It is truly a life transforming experience to be a Christian. And the Apostle Paul outlines how the Roman Christians are to live out their Christian lives in a pagan world. And it truly was a pagan and a hostile world. And they were, in some sense, going to stick out like sore thumbs. How were they going to live? Well, they were going to live for God. And they had to be taught. And they had to be encouraged. And examples had to be given unto them. The Apostle Paul would have been in touch with all the churches. We read in his letters that he has a care and a concern over all the churches. And that's not just the churches that he was instrumental in forming. 
He had a, a mission to the Gentiles and every church he was concerned about. And things would have got back to him. And in this epistle, towards the end, this practical section, he would address things that needed to be addressed in the congregation. As a pastor, and never forget, no matter how much people might despise the Apostle Paul and his theology, he was a theologian, yes, that's true, but he also had a pastor's heart. And therefore, he was going to address an issue in this congregation. And the issue was, how am I to live out my Christian life? Well, first of all, they were going to recognize that the Christian life was a new life. It was a tremendous life. It was a, a life unlike any other life. And in this chapter here, he deals with relationships. In, chapter, in verses 1 to 2, he deals with the Christian's relationship to God. In verses 3 to 16, he deals with relationships with other believers. And this is obviously a thing that all of us need to consider. In verses 17 to 18, he deals with our relationships to unbelievers. And finally, towards the end of the chapter, from verses 19 to 21, he deals with our relationship, not just with unbelievers, but some unbelievers who might be hostile, who are enemies. Someone can be an unbeliever, but not necessarily our enemy. But some unbelievers will be our enemies. And he deals with these things. But we particularly want to look at our relationship to God and how we are to live for God, as we find it primarily in our text in verse 1. And what does he say? That you present your bodies, your whole life, everything, because you owe everything to the Lord your God. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, again, the Apostle Paul addressing the Corinthians. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What a glorious, wonderful transformation has come upon the Christians in Corinth. And that same transformation has come upon the people in Partick today who sit here professing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. New life has come into your soul. God has brought about a, a spiritual resurrection. You have been born again by the Spirit of God. You're a new man in Christ. You have new motives, new desires, new aims, new goals, a new life. You're walking in a different path. But you're still in a fallen world, in a wilderness world, in a cursed world. And you need to be taught how to live. This is what Paul is telling them. And as he looks at relationships, the first thing is for the Christian to get their relationship with God right and to present their bodies as 
living sacrifices. Ones who live for Almighty God. He says this in other parts of the the New Testament. It's not unique to the Romans. And that's why we would study it today, because the things that he highlights to the Romans are relevant to us today. Human nature has not changed. Society has not changed. We might have computers and we might have aeroplanes that fly us from one end of the world to another end in a very short space of time. But human nature has not changed. And the difficulties that they face, we will face. They were in a pagan world. We're in a pagan world. We're in a pagan world where Christianity is despised. Where the blood of Christ is thought nothing of. And we have to live out our Christian life. And the first thing we need to realize is we need to live for God. Put him first and foremost. Devote ourselves to him. That our relationship to him might be right. Paul says this in another way in in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. There the Philippians were a, a model congregation. They didn't really have many difficulties or problems that the Apostle Paul had to address. But he says to them, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. When he talks, when he says about only let your conversation, he's not talking about the things they speak about. It would include that, but their conversation means their lifestyle. It means how they are to live. And therefore, every part of their life, not just their conversation, they are to, they are to be ones who behave as becometh the gospel of Christ. We are to walk and live as it becomes the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is to be saved from sin. That's what it is primarily. Too many people look at the gospel and project the gospel and the blessings and the benefits of the gospel to eternity. Well, of course it brings Blessings to those who in eternity. Of course it does. But first and foremost. The gospel deals with sin. It deals with our greatest problem. It deals with the problem of problems. That's why Jesus came. Yes we know. That the Christian is saved from condemnation. And saved from the pains of hell. We know that. And we rejoice in that. But first and foremost. If we're saved from hell. We must be saved from our sins. From its guilt. From its pollution. And this, was, this is what the gospel does. And this is what... What the gospel addresses, and only the gospel addresses, this vital issue. Religion cannot address this. No. But Jesus does. 
And Jesus has. And therefore, if our sins have been forgiven and that great problem has been truly dealt with, we're not to live in sin. This is what he's saying to the the Philippians and to us this morning. You're to offer up your lives as living sacrifices. You're not to live in sin. You're not to live in the old life. You're not to commit the sins that you were committing in your days of unbelief. Christ has come into the heart and into the life. New life has come. New power has come. Your will has been changed once you served your own lust. Once you did and pleased yourself. No longer. You have a new ruler, a new master. Unbelievers don't like to hear this. And what do they do? They would, they would distort what I'm saying. But the Bible teaches us that our days of unbelief were days when we were under the thraldom and the dominion of the evil one. No, I'm not saying we were demon-possessed. That's what the unbeliever might derive from this. No, no. But the Bible does recognize that an unbeliever in his days of unbelief was under the thraldom and the dominion and the influence and the power of the evil one. And he never bothered them. He didn't have to fight over them. They were under his power. But something happened when we become Christians. Something happened. His power was broken. He no longer has dominion. He no longer has power. Oh yes, he can influence and he can tempt and he does tempt the Christian. But we have power to resist. A power that we never had before. We have said it before. And we're not ashamed to repeat good things. If you're a Christian, you have been brought into the kingdom of God by the power of God. And by his Holy Spirit. And if you're in the kingdom of God, you'll be kept in the kingdom of God by that same Holy Spirit, by that same power. And therefore, that's why we're able to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly devoted unto the service of God, no longer serving sin, self, and Satan. There is new life. Yes, there will be a battle. We are not going to hide that from anyone. There will be a battle. The Christian is a complex individual. Why so? Well, he's a complex individual because he still has the old nature, the old man. It's there. It's been crucified to some extent. It is dying off, but it's still there. And the devil can be there and he can tempt the Christian. And he can tag into the, the old nature. But the new nature is there. And it fights against the old nature. 
And that fight will continue. Christian, you'll never overcome that fight. That fight will be there until the day you're taken into eternity. And we would say, if you don't know anything of this fight, you need to question whether you're truly Christ or not. Because this is normative for the Christian. The old nature will seek to rise up, but the new nature will strike it down. Sometimes the old nature will overcome, and you'll find yourself drifting in to your old sins and your old way of life. But the new nature, powered by the Holy Spirit, will indeed rise up and fight against that na nature. And that's the way it will be. And that's why you're urged to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Rest upon the Lord your God, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What's he asking for then? He's asking for a new life. And a new life that is evident. A life, an ethical life, a morally pure life. Now you might say, well, I know atheists who live good lives. And there are atheists who live good lives. We're not going to deny that. They might call themselves atheists or they might call themselves humanists and they would be good neighbours and they're good work colleagues. They recognise that to live a morally upright life is in one sense a common sense thing to do. You won't find them in the pub getting drunk. Why? Because they know that this leads to a debauched lifestyle. You won't find them being unclean. They're faithful to their partners. Why? Because they know that to live an unclean life is not a good idea. There are so many difficulties and problems and things that befall those who live an unclean life. And you can, you can go through many other sins and they would... They would avoid them because they know that ultimately these things do not improve their lives at all. And what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way is there will be people like atheists and humanists who live good lives. And if you saw an atheist here and the Christian there, you couldn't see a difference between their lives, between their outward lives. The Christian lives a respectable life. So does the atheist, so does the humanist. And we might broaden up this illustration and we might say there are many religious people who live good lives. You could think of the Orthodox Jew. He lives a good life. You won't find him being drunk. You won't find him being abusive to his, to his wife. You won't find him committing adultery or fornication. He lives a good life. You could say that for many, many Muslims. We know that there are some Muslims who are 
do not live a good life, we know that. But there are many, many Muslims who live an upright life. And if you look at their life, it would be hard to tell a difference as far as morality, as far as ethics are concerned between the Christian and the Muslim. What makes the difference? The difference is, friends, what matters is not what we do, but why we do it. It is by the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The atheist, when he lives a morally upright life, has no care or thought about God. The same can be said for the humanist. And the Orthodox Jew and the Muslim, why do they do the things they do? It's not because of the mercy of God. It's because they fear the punishment of God. But the Christian is to live a morally upright life and to show that his life has been transformed because he has experienced the mercy of God. He recognizes that Jesus Christ has done something wonderful for him. And because of the great debt that he owes his God, because of the mercy of God, he lives this life that Paul here outlines. So it's not so much what you do, it's why you do it. This is what he wants to impress upon the Roman Christians. And notice how he does it. Notice how he does it. Here's Paul, the great apostle, arguably the greatest apostle, the one with great authority. He had seen the risen Christ. He had received this direct commission from Christ to be the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. How does he approach these people, most of whom would be nobodies? They would be slaves. Here, the apostle Paul says, I beseech you. He could have come along with some kind of warrant. This is what you must do. No, no. I beseech you. He acknowledges he's just one with them. He may be the great apostle Paul. He may have written under inspiration most of the New Testament. But he's identifying with these slaves, with these outcasts. I beseech you. That's the kind of individual he was. He calls them what? Brethren. Brethren. He, he had received the mercy of God. He was a recipient of it. And he identifies with them. Friends, this is important today. It's important for the life of the congregation. It's important for your own life and your own well-being. We know we live in a time, in a day, when the churches are even less than half empty. Many congregations are just surviving and no more. It takes an enormous amount of effort 
to get a new person to come in to the church, to come into a service like this. It takes an immense amount of obstacles to overcome before someone who's probably never been in a church before to come into an environment like this. They won't listen to sermons. They don't accept the Bible. It's an old book. It's outdated. That's what they say. But friends, a life transformed, a life devoted as a living sacrifice to the living God is a wonderful testimony and it speaks volumes when the minister's voice is silent and when they won't hear the word of God read or preached they can see a life that has been transformed and if you go out and you're a a working individual, and you go into a working environment, and they see someone there devoted to Christ, to his cause, and offering themselves as a living sacrifice. They can see it. They might not understand it, but they can see it. And it's the same for those who have difficulties in their home. When their lives have been transformed, others see it. And it's a great tool for evangelism, Because it will silence people. When they will not listen to your words. They will listen. And acknowledge. Your behavior. And this is why he says it. They were in a really hostile environment. A pagan world. Surrounded with idolatry. Here was poor people. Most of them likely to be slaves, the scum of the earth. How are they going to make an impact in the great imperial city of Rome? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's only reasonable Paul is not demanding something of them that is unreasonable. Christ offered up himself a perfect living sacrifice. We're to walk in his footsteps. Living for God then. This is what it's all about for the Christian. For the unbeliever he knows nothing of this. He is living for himself or herself. But we believe this is the day of grace. We believe that things can change. We believe that Christ can change a life. Come therefore. Come and avail yourselves of this glorious life-changing Saviour. And know what it is to live for God.